Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. You would turn to chapter 1 in Psalms. This week we are beginning our series of going through the Psalms. This morning we'll be reading through chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their, their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with, the tre- and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Father, I pray that your word would be truly a delight within our hearts, Lord, that we would meditate upon your law day and night. Lord, and as your word is being proclaimed this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and cause your word word to sink deeply within. Lord, so that it would cause us to not only hear it, but it would cause us to meditate on it. It would bring conviction of sin. It would change us, and it would turn our hearts and minds to you to worship you. pray that you be with Matt. Give him the words to speak clearly and concisely. Give him boldness to proclaim what it is that you have laid upon his heart. Pray you be honored this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come this morning to begin a fresh look into the Psalms. And our plan over the next several weeks, in fact, this series should lead us up, Lord willing, to Christmas is to look at the Psalms in a way that becomes a practical tool for you in your daily Christian life. 
as you read psalms of lament, as you read psalms of longing, psalms of waiting on the hand of God to deliver his people, as you read psalms of praise and rejoicing that our God is king and rules all things. We, we want to help you week by week uh, build a tool chest for your own soul, that you might uh, have a therapy for your own soul in God's word within the Psalms. The reason to look at the Psalms in such a way, William S. Plummer has said this, the Psalms are wonderful. They have been read, repeated, chanted, sung, studied, wept over, rejoiced in, expounded, loved and praised by God's people for thousands of years. They're situated right in the middle of your Bible. And in fact, oftentimes, Psalms are thought of as the hymn book of the Bible. And although I think that is right, I think that's also a little bit dangerous. Dangerous in the fact, when we consider these two books, one a hymnal and one a Bible, Our default method is to think one of these is the divine, inspired word of God, and the other is songs based upon that which is true. Friends, this is not true about the Psalms. It is the word of God. It is inspired. It is without error. In fact, it expresses the full range of human emotion to a God who knows us and has made us. The reason to give a caution at the beginning of this study is we have grown accustomed to songs within the church, and that's what psalms are. They weren't just intended to be read. They weren't just intended to be thought as you read them silently in your head. They were intended to be sung. But our singing in the church has become something strange in the modern era. So much so that we are accustomed to what we call worship music where we sort of take it with a grain of salt. Well, I really like this song. I I like the arrangement of it. I like the feeling that it gives me. You know, I don't necessarily believe everything that's in it. And so we, we sort of sing through a filter. We listen to music about God through a filter. And I want to say to us, that's very dangerous. I, I, in preparation for this, thought I would just point out some of the the glaring inconsistencies in Christian music, especially what gets uh, attributed as worship music, music specifically designed for the church. And so I I did a Google search. In fact, we have a a slide for it. I typed in worst theologically inaccurate songs of 2022, and I just braced myself for what was coming. Here is the number one result that Google popped up. It's from Counterpoint Church in Tampa Bay, Florida area. And the number one song they said to be careful of, In Christ Alone, by Keith Getty. At which point I was so shocked. I'm like, I'm taking a picture of this because my people are not going to believe me. In Christ Alone. Here's what they said, just an excerpt of this. A lot of Christians with progressive interpretations of the Bible have a problem with lyrics like, Till on the cross, as Jesus died, The wrath of God was satisfied, and his father turned his face away. Here's their description. It's so controversial that the Presbyterian Church of the U.S., which is PCUSA, 
dropped it from its official hymnal because they and other churches don't accept the theology of penal substitution. In other words, that God has punished his son for our sins. He's the substitute for our punishment. The belief that God has burning rage bent against mankind that is mitigated in Jesus. And here's what they say. There's a case to be made for that theology and against it. But if you want your church to be inclusive, you best stay away from such controversial music. And I was done. (laughs) I was done with all of my looking into, let's find these horrible songs that are out there. And I I was finished with mankind for about 30 minutes. I just fumed in my office for a while. Because we are so inundated with songs that sound like Jesus is my boyfriend. We are inundated with songs that say Jesus will fix all of my problems as they uh, reflect this word of faith theology that's uh, invasive in so much of modern Christian music. Music that's emotionally manipulative uh, and all about worship experiences where sinners and saints can leave together some corporate act of worship and say, wasn't that awesome. Yet there was no call to an acknowledgement of sin and no repentance, and therefore no genuine faith in Christ at all. No. There's no seeing of sin in the light of God's holy, perfect wrath against our intentional rebellion against him. And therefore there's no glorying in the cross, in the sacrifice of God's own son, upon that cross, in the stead of ruined sinners. Oh, friends, that is singing that has no gospel. No, instead, we rejoice that the good news is that in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is fully and forever satisfied. And in place of wrath that you and I deserve for our sins, we've been given Christ's righteousness. There's no, there's no depths to the exchange that happens here. It's not just that God has chosen not to hold our sins against us. He's chosen to hold Christ's righteousness against us. In the beloved, we are adopted, accepted, and loved forever. So here's what I'm saying to the churches who would say, let us exclude things that proclaim the gospel quite so clearly. The book of Psalms is not for you. Again, to complete the quote from William S. Plummer, the Psalms are expression of holy feeling, which can be understood by those only who have become alive to such feeling. Well, these are not general therapy for the soul for all of the world. No, these are specifically for those who have put their hope and trust in the God who saves but also the God who deals severely with sin. It's his own wrath from which he saves us. The Psalms are filled with lament and longing over a broken world, and yet they are anchored in hope. Hope that there is not some future version of us that we just become better and better and better. No, hope that there is already a perfect man. Hope that there is a son, that there is a king who is good enough who is powerful enough to save his people and crush every wicked enemy. And therefore, 
That son deserves the highest praise. That king deserves our highest praise. So here is our goal in our study of the Psalms in the next few weeks. It's two parts. It's theology and doxology. Let's unpack those words just a little bit together. Theology is to rightly see and know our God. That's our head. That that deals with what what our heads know and understand to be true and right. And therefore, uh, what comes out of our worship must start with a right understanding of God. We must see Him, and the Psalms clearly display Him as King upon the throne, ruling. We must see Him as the Psalms portray Him as the great high priest who is redeeming. We must see him as the Psalms portray him as the Savior for his people who is rescuing. That's the theology that the Psalms from beginning to end will paint of our God and Savior in Christ. It's all pointing forward. That's why the last thing that we sang is that beautiful song, which I think we should maybe sing every single week, Show Us Christ. And who cares what Matt has to say? Who cares what any other person who stands in this place has to say? Let us hear from the word of God. And in that, oh God, let us see Christ. That's theology. Here's the second half, doxology. Doxology is just a a fancy word that means to praise God. It's the science of praise. It's the study of God who deserves to be praised. That we would be reminded in our daily life, in our joys... And in our struggles, that right now, in this moment, in this situation, our God reigns. Our God is ruling over this moment. It's not out of his control, though it may be far from ours. And right now, our God is worthy of our praise. That's our heart. It starts with an understanding in our mind, theologically, thinking rightly about God, and doxology, that we would rightly worship God from a heart that knows him and loves him. So we're going to be looking at several different themes in the Psalms. The themes of lament and praise. Themes of trust and repentance. And I pray over the next few weeks, these become a practical help for your life. I pray that as a part of this, you learn to pray the Psalms. I pray as a part of this, you learn to meditate upon the Psalms. Because here's what John Calvin said. The Psalms are an anatomy of the soul. For there is is not any emotion which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented in the Psalms as a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to life all the grief, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the mind of men or want to be agitated. What are the things that that stir us and distract us? The things like for myself in the last couple weeks that cause such anxiety to just overwhelm you, we find the hope for them in the Psalms. They are just gut-level honest as they come before the Lord. And here's what Augustine said. Form thy spirit by the affection of the Psalms. Because it's true, because what Calvin said is true, that it is an accurate diagnosis, it is an anatomy of all that goes in within my heart and yours. So Augustine says, when you come to the Psalms, don't try and find 
pick some bit and piece to fit the current mood that you're in. He says, no, form your soul, form your spirit by the affections that we find in the Psalms. If the Psalm breathes the spirit of prayer, then pray. If it is filled with groaning, then groan also thyself. If it is gladsome, rejoice also. If it encourages hope, then hope thou in God. If it calls to godly fear, then tremble thou before divine majesty. For all things herein contained are mirrors to reflect our real character. Let the heart do what the words signify. That, that's where we're going in the series. But before we go there, today I wanted to start us off with a foundation of the Psalms. Because they are more than just a practical toolkit for your prayer life. They're more than just some random assortment of hymns and poems that were thrown together haphazardly with no order and therefore no overall message. No, there is a larger theme. There is a larger message in the book of Psalms that we can see if we pull back and look at the big picture of the book. A big picture that will help us to see Christ. To rightly cherish in this book as the very word of God even though we see it as sin-bent men and women. I've got about a nine-minute video because the Gospel Project illustrated it in a way that I cannot, and I think it is a very succinct summary of this book. So we're going to go ahead and play this. Hopefully it gives both an auditory and visual description of what's going on in the Psalms. The Book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73 actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So, it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning, to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 
two, which stand outside of book one because most of the poems in book one are linked to David, except Psalms one and two, which are anonymous. Psalm one celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here actually the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind, which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the messianic king will be blessed, precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future messianic kingdom. Now with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So for example, book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now, in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the Messianic kingdom. Then book 2 closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the Messianic king over all of the nations. This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David, but now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result in destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's roots with a prayer of Moses. And he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of book four is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. Book five opens with a series of 
poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called The Hollow and the other called The Songs of Ascent. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combined all together here in book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song for Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now, here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention, because you'll see praise poems occasionally too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems, and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound, and it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope, that's what the book of Psalms is all about. thought that was a very good description, although it is not without error. I don't know if you noticed, but the horn that was raised up on the bull of triumph, the bull had udders on it. <laughs> Whoever drew that needs to spend some time in Indiana. What I wanted us to see from that is there is a big picture to the book of Psalms. When we dive into it, so often in our daily life, we're going to be looking at one aspect. God, I'm feeling the angst of lament. Oh, Lord, help me fix my hope and trust upon you. And yet we need to back up and see that from beginning to end, it is pointing us towards a Savior, a Messiah, a King who is coming. So 
It's important if we're going to rightly read the book of Psalms that we understand that it is Hebrew poetry and not English poetry as we have been raised with. Uh, the poetry we grew up with uh, is based on something pretty different. Although we, we read the Psalms, we go, this is, it, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are difficult, but this seems pretty easy. This seems pretty straightforward. I, I think I can figure it out without, without much work. But our default tendency is to read ourself into the text. Where do I find myself in the text in front of me? And so we bring to that our experience and our understanding, and we put that into the text. And again, friends, that is dangerous. Why? Because context is always key to understanding what we have in front of us. Even when the meaning seems clear and obvious. If you're not there already, turn to Psalm 1 with me. We're going to be covering these psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, in future weeks, so I, I'm not going to go through an expositional look at them. But what I want to do is give us an overview as they, they sit for us as the introduction to this book. While you're turning there, Dr. Jim Johnston, who is the pastor at Camelback Church in Arizona and instructor for the Charles Simeon Trust, said this. He gave this illustration on context and meaning. Imagining your wife come and says to you, and so I'll just use uh, our situation as illustration, Matt, the car is dirty. Now, we live in a day and age where most men go, I have no way to know what a woman is thinking. That's wrong, guys. You, you actually know. So uh, normally we ask the kids this question. Uh, guys, I'm going to ask you the questions, all right? So I want you to tell me, what is my wife saying when she comes to me and says, Matt, the car is dirty? What, what is she really saying? I just heard a wife go, see, I knew it. <laughs> Stop making excuses. Context. So what if it's our anniversary and we've, we've decided to go to some far off distant destination and we, we fly into some tropical airport and we, we get off the plane and, and we go towards the rental car area for the car that we've rented. And as we approach the spot and the car is sitting in front of us, Danielle looks at me and she says, Matt, Car's dirty. What's she saying? Pick a different car. Now, now, she just said the same words, but did the context completely change the meaning? Now, how about when your kids are teenagers and you tell your daughter on a Friday night, look, I, I know you're going to borrow the car and go out with your friends, but you know that boy, that boy. Don't go see him. You know, the, the boy that lives at the end of that dirt road, He's no good. Don't be spending time with him. Don't go see that boy. And in the morning, my wife comes and says, Matt, car's dirty. What's she saying? Can you hear how context changed something that seems so clear and so obvious? But if you don't have the context right, you will completely miss what is being said. Here's what Jim Johnson says. The quest for context is actually the quest for meaning. That's what we want. When we look at the Psalms, we are on a quest for what is the meaning that lies behind it. This is Hebrew poetry. Therefore, we have to understand it. We have to interpret it as Hebrew poetry. Now, in English poetry, it's all about rhyming or meter, something that you grew up with, maybe either loving or tolerating. 
But Hebrew poetry is entirely different. I've listed some of these in the bulletin for you just as as references of these uh, different types of poems. There's a total of nine psalms that follow the structure of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 9, 10, 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, 119, and 145. And if you're not reading them in Hebrew, you'll miss that. You won't see, oh, these are tracking through the Hebrew alphabet. And just to prove that these psalms aren't thrown together haphazard, Psalm 9 and 10 fit together in such a way that each one has half of the alphabet and it tracks right through the two of them that were always meant to be together. That's one kind. Psalm 119 consists of 22 stanzas of eight verses beginning successively which each, with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There, there's an intentionality, again, that if you're just reading it in English, we will miss. By the way, uh, for most of us dummies, we can only read it in English. The theme of Psalm 37 is that the wicked, the wicked and how the righteous should not worry when the wicked seem to be doing well because it just won't last. God, the righteous judge, will deal with them, and so their victory will not last. And so in Psalm 37, this is a different kind of poem, there's a key word that occurs 13 times in the psalm, and it's wicked. In Hebrew, it's rasha. It begins with the Hebrew letter R, or resh, And as you read the psalm, again, in English, we miss this entirely. When you come to the culmination, verses 34 and 36, there's actually 15 words in a row that begin with the Hebrew letter R. It's repetition, repetition, repetition. And he's saying there's wickedness, 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 and it will not last. And lastly, one that you are most familiar with, Psalm 23. Most of you could quote all or part of it by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It has 55 words in Hebrew with one phrase that's stuck right in the middle. There's 26 Hebrew words before it and there's 26 Hebrew words after it. It's as if Psalm 23 is a gigantic arrow that points at the middle of itself where the words, Thou art with me. Oh, this is not just about God giving us what we need and leading us to good pastures. It's the promise that whether uh, an army encamps against us or whether we feel like we're in a comfortable place, thou art with me. That's what the Hebrew poet is pointing us to. So I want to see some of this in Psalm 1 and 2 as an introduction to how we should read the rest of the book, the rest of the Psalms. So look with me. That's Psalm 1 and 2, and I, I've got them just sort of parallel side by side so you can see this. Uh, one of the ways that a Hebrew author will show you what's important in the middle is a linguistic tool called inclusio. It, think of it as brackets or bookends. So it's going to say the same thing at the beginning and at the end. And so we find at the beginning of Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man. And we find at the end of Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. These are meant to be together. Here's the question that we should ask when we look at that. Who's the man? Well, when we, when we see these as a whole, it actually gets much easier to find out who that is. Psalm 2, verse 2. The Lord and against his anointed. Anointed there is actually the Hebrew word for Messiah. 
Psalm 2, verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Psalm 2, verse 12, we're instructed to kiss the son. Now, how do we know that's what the psalmist is pointing to? See, if we're not careful, if we don't get the context right, I'm going to read Psalm 1 and 2 and think it's all about me. Because my number one thing to do is read myself into the text. So how do we know he's talking about Jesus? I thought this was all about how I can be a better Christian. The type of Christian who doesn't walk with the wicked. The type of Christian who doesn't stand with sinners, sit with scoffers, but spends all... How many of you have heard this sermon before? How many of you have heard me preach this sermon before? Yeah, probably. Oh, instead of doing those things, he spends all his time... This sounds so spiritual. Praying. Reading the Bible. Writing lengthy blog posts on the evil of secular music. And how from the foundation of the earth, God has ordained the long jean skirt. Praise be to God. Look with me at Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not. That word not is going to be repeated three times. Is it important when Scripture repeats something? Yeah. Blessed is the man who walks not. Not in the counsel of the wicked, nor, it's the same word, stands in the way of sinners, nor, same word, sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In the Hebrew, it's the exact same word that gets repeated three times. And by the way, it's the exact same word that was found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, when it said God had not caused it to rain. Up to that time, it had not rained. The fact that he says it three times in this context carries with it this idea. He does not do these things. He never has done these things, and he never will do these things. This is not a pattern for you to be better. This is a description of one who is perfect. From the very first lines in the book of Psalms, you are not pointed towards you, you are pointed towards a coming Savior, a coming man, a coming King, a coming Messiah. We are pointed towards Jesus from the first line of the Psalms. And friends, I want to encourage you, as you read the Psalms, as you meditate on the Psalms, they are meant to point you to Jesus. Now, if you're thinking, you should say, but wait a minute, Psalms are in the Old Testament, and Jesus, come on kids, is in the New Testament. So if Jesus hasn't been born yet, how can this be pointing us towards Jesus? Well, Jesus says in Luke 24, verse 44 to 47, by the way, this is after his resurrection, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms are to be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Oh, friends, there's so much in there that we cannot see the glory of Christ in the Gospel if God does not open our minds. But Jesus himself says, The Psalms testify to me. And so we find right at the beginning of Psalm 1, this man, this perfect man who never has, never will walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. But instead, what does he do? He delights in the law of the Lord. 
Oh, what, what was said of Jesus? I, I delight to do your word, O God. On your word I meditate day and night. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Now again, this is Hebrew poetry and not English poetry. In English poetry, we are used to comparisons that use the word like and as. Do you have that in your Bible? He is like a tree. You know what Hebrew says? In the the actual Hebrew of Psalm 1 verse 3? A tree planted by streams of water. Your translators have helped you understand what's there, but it's just a statement. It's not he's like a tree. He is the tree. He is the tree that bears fruit. He is the tree that does not wither, and all that he does will prosper. There is a repetition of Jeremiah 17 verse 8. That, that says this exact same thing. It echoes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with the tree of life that stands in the midst. And even greater than that, there's an echo that goes forward even to Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 and 2, where John says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nation. Friends, who is Revelation talking to? Who is Psalm 1 talking to? It's about Jesus. This is Christ, the perfect man. Streams of water coming from him, yielding fruit, does not wither in all that he does. He prospers. Oh, contrast as the psalmist does the perfect man with the wicked nations, the the people groups. This isn't nations like America and Canada and other nations of the world. This is the people groups, the ethnos that are on the earth. Psalm 1 verse 5, the wicked who will not stand in the judgment. Verse 6, the wicked will perish. Chapter 2, verse 1, the wicked nations rage against the Lord and against his Messiah. Chapter 2, verse 4, God laughs at them. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. When those rise up to say there is no God, number one, Scripture says it's the fool who says in his heart there is no God. And God is not threatened upon his throne, nor should we be. It says that God in heaven laughs at them and he holds them in derision. It literally means that God makes fun of them for their stupidity. Psalm 2, verse 6, he is the king. Verse 9, the king breaks them with a rod of iron, that, that king's scepter. That we, we find that all throughout scripture, that this kingly language of a rod and a scepter. Psalm 2, verse 12, therefore the nations, the wicked, are commanded bow and kiss the son. Bow before this perfect man. Bow before this king on the throne, this son of God. So let's back up to that question. Where do we find ourselves in the psalm? We want to find ourselves in verses 1 and 2. 
those who delight in the law of God, uh, those who choose not to do all these things, but instead do all the right and super spiritual things. Only if we are honest, that's not where we locate ourselves in these Psalms. They lay out a path and pattern for the rest of our understanding of the Psalms. So where are we? We are not the hope. We are not the blessed man who does everything right, always has, and always will. That, that's what these words mean. Always has done everything right, and always will do everything right. Guys, just look at your wife and go, you know it's talking about me, baby. Don't say that. Don't say that. It's not talking about you. No, we are found closer to the wicked who stand opposed to God opposed to his word, and therefore, as you find throughout the Psalms, stand under his righteous judgment. That means the Psalms will call you. This is, this is the theology part. See the greatness of God and bow before him. Rather than staying under his wrath, find blessing in taking refuge underneath him. So what's the overall message of the Psalms? Our God is the creator king of all things. He rules all things. He will judge the wicked. He will save his people. and Therefore, he is worthy of our praise. Mentioned just briefly earlier, these connecting uh, ending verses between the different books within Psalms, and they all end with something basically like this. This is the end of book one, Psalm 41, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Friends, that's located early in the Psalms as we are in the place of longing. Oh God, how long? How long will we go through these heartaches and struggles? Oh God, will you remember your people? In the midst of waiting, we say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. If things turn out great for our family, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. If things turn out great for our church, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. If with the hymnist we say, when my lips lie silent in the grave, with death dews upon my brow, here's what we say, blessed be the Lord, the eternal God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. And amen. Worship team, would you come and join me? I want to encourage you as families to spend some time reading through Psalm 1 and 2 together. But here's what, what I want you to do. Especially kids, as your family is reading it together. Now, if you're, if you're single or you're uh, by yourself when you're reading it, uh, you can do this for yourself. But kids, if you're part of it and mom and dad are reading it, I want you to interrupt them. I want you to point out every time that he mentions the wicked and what will happen to them. Right? So every time there's, there's a mention of those who are opposed to God, who don't like God, I want you to say, oh, that's the wicked, and then say what it says will happen. I want you to stop and point out every time that it mentions the Lord, or this man, or the son, or a king, and what it is that he will do.
especially as you read Psalm 2. Look how it describes a world much like ours today where people say, we will throw off any thought of God. We don't need this God of the Bible. And then read again verses 4 and 5 and 9 through 12. And then talk about what are some of the scary things? What are some of the terrifying things that it says for those who think they don't need God? And then pray together. We all have friends. We have family. We have neighbors who actually are standing in that terrifying place of saying, I don't need God. I don't need his word. And I don't need his son to save me. Mention them by name, and then mention their names before the Father. Let's pray, asking God to open their eyes to see the gospel, open their hearts to understand the truth of his word. Oh, that is the greatest need that we have. In fact, I would challenge you this morning, maybe you're in here this morning, and maybe you look really good on the outside, but there's part of your heart that says, I don't need God, I don't need his word. I've got it figured out. I can do it on my own. Man, I'd call you to the same thing. The Bible's word is repent. It means turn. Turn from trusting in yourself and look to Jesus. It's so simple. It's not turn and then start doing at least six months of the right thing. No, it's turning in faith in that moment and saying, Oh God, I am a sinner. Would you save me? Oh God, I'm unable to save myself. Show me Christ and help me trust in him. Would you stand together and pray with me? Father, I just acknowledge for myself how quickly my eyes fall from the king upon the throne to whatever situation I find myself in, whatever difficulty lies in front of me. And then if I can fix it, if I can handle it, if I can figure it out, oh God, then I feel like there is hope. But if I feel like I can't fix it, even in this last week, oh God, how often did I feel like there was no hope? Lord, I can't speak for my friends, but I just confess for myself, God, that is sin because in that moment I have forgotten you. I have forgotten that the God who knows my name, who has called me, who has saved me, is also the king of the universe who it says calls out the stars one by one and knows their names. Trillions upon trillions of stars obey your commands. How much more lowly men and women like me. God, we trust you. And yet where we have failed to do that, we pray, oh God, forgive us. and Give us grace to fix our eyes again upon you. We have not earned this place at your table. We have not earned our invitation. It is by grace alone that we have been saved. So even now, oh God, as we look to come to the table representing your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed, that our sin might be ever stripped from us and your righteousness ever placed upon us. We pray again, shower us with grace. Grace to believe. 
grace to live lives that bring honor and glory to you, we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.